of the great things about Mission Sunday is that, and, and let's be honest, in the busy lives that we lead, sometimes we can forget that that's what we're called to do, is be on mission. And, and so, if for no other reason, Mission Sunday is good because it recalibrates us and we think at least for a week out of the year, hey, that's right, we are supposed to be on some kind of a mission. When I first became a Christian, some of you know this story, I spent probably the first three years of my Christian life contemplating whether or not I was going to go to the mission field. It just, it, I didn't grow up in the church. It was just kind of as I read the New Testament, it just seemed like that's what Christians did. And so I would take every advantage to go on missions trips, um, planted a, helped plant a church when I was 18. And from that church, we helped a church plant in Australia. So I joined them doing that. And then I went off to communist China to smuggle Bibles and the whole time. And at the same time, doing my music ministry at home, going to the nightclubs in Waikiki, preaching the gospel, sharing my faith. I just kept thought, well, am I going to go into the mission field? Is this what God wants of me? And it became clear that that, that wasn't going to be for me. I was going to minister in my home country and that God wanted me to be a rock star. So I figured <laughs> that's what I was going to do. I moved to Los Angeles and pursued being a rock star and realized, no, that's not what God wants me to do. He actually wants me to be a, a pastor and a, a shepherd of God's people. But that being said, I'm glad to be in a church where the the mission's impulse is there. As a matter of fact, we, brought, we, we, had, so we had English, we had uh, Spanish, we had Japanese, we had, was that Russian? Was that Russian? We had French. Is Randy here right now? Randy, uh, Jan, do all French people speak that passionately? Or that's just Randy. Randy, do all French people speak that passionately? Okay. So, so, it's great, you know, and, and we didn't even have the time to mention it. Like, so we had that list. We didn't have Kyle and Krista on that list. We didn't have the, can, the Kents on the list. We, we are a church that has a lot of things going on in missions, and a lot of times, sometimes we can't keep track of it. But that's a good thing, because that means for a church our size, we're actually thinking about missions in ways that counts. And, you know, did you see that list of, at first I thought it was a typo. I was like, no, it's not 2020 Mission Sunday. No, but I realized what we were doing. We were saying in 2020 which is a pretty tough year, that's all the just, that, that was just the kind of financial and human being kind of things we did in that year alone when, when so many things were kind of pulling back. And, and when you think about it, that's pretty impressive because overall, 2020 was a hard year for missions. It really was. Uh, I know 2020 was a hard year for, for us on a number of levels, but this week as I, was our, as I was preparing, I thought 2020 was hard for missions as well. You know, Kyle and Krista, who are missionaries in Japan doing a one-year internship with Christ Bible Institute, they abruptly had to come home, and because of the response to the coronavirus, they couldn't go back and finish their time there. Uh, we had plans to send teams to Colorado City and preach the gospel there, and those got shut down because of state lockdowns. I remember speaking with the Haberchaks, and because the uh, American embassy was trying to do an emergency evac of all the expats there, they almost had their entire ministry to Papua New Guinea derailed because they had to e think about leaving immediately and leaving their ministry or staying behind and facing all kinds of uncertainty. Uh, missions was impacted because of what happened in 2020. And I'm glad to say that I, I think the tide is turning. I got an email this past week from one of our partner churches or partner, partner churches and said, hey, we got to talk about getting back to Japan because the need is great. Along with that email, he gave me this article from CNN. Whoops, that's not the article from CNN. Oh, wait a minute. The article from CNN was supposed to be the first one. No, that's not it. That's the article I want to show you. Uh, in, in Japan... More people died from suicide in this month past October than in the entire year in the entire country that died from coronavirus. And, and as I think about that, that reminded me that the true, deadly, global pandemic 
is sin and its effects. And the only vaccine, the only cure for that pandemic is going to be the gospel. And so when I got that email, I was excited to hear that they're already, they, they haven't even thought about the restrictions going on in Japan or how we're going to do it. I just was excited to see this mentality of we got to get back to the work in Japan. And, and I'm sure that's happening everywhere in missions. So I was, in, I was heartened by that. And so this morning, what I want to do, because missions is so important, is I want us to walk through the, the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and see how the Bible is a book about missions. So this is what I want you to do. Grab a Bible. If you don't have one, grab one from the, one, the, the pew in front of you. And I want you to actually turn to the table of contents. So get that part out there. And because what I want to do is as I walk through the Scriptures, I want to help you see how missions is intricately tied through all of God's Word this morning. So I wanna, I'm going to be referencing the table of contents a lot, and I'll have the Scripture passages on the screen, so to speak. So, so what, what's going to happen this morning is it's not so much going to be a sermon per se, more than it might be a kind of like a, a lecture from seminary. I hope I haven't turned some of you off, right? So, so it, it's not going to be a classic three-point sermon today. I've got 11 points to make, um, but they're, they're going to be good points. Don't dial out. They're going to be good points, and some of them are going to be very brief. I want to show you how missions is at the very heart, at the very core of the Bible. And just so you know how this works, because I've been saying Jesus is at the very core of the Bible, and now I'm saying missions is at the core of the Bible. Here's how it works, friends. Missions is irrevocably, and by missions, what I mean is, I don't want to assume everyone knows that, is that Christ has sent us on a mission to spread the gospel into all four corners of the earth, and that's the mission all Christians have, right? Whether it's globally or across the street, we are all on mission. The whole concept, though, is that missions is irrevocably tied into the God's salvation work. And so missions and salvation go hand in hand. And at the center of God's salvific work is the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and his message of the gospel. So the gospel is irrevocably tied into salvation, and salvation is irrevocably tied into mission. So when I say mission is at the core of the Bible, I'm not contradicting myself. These are all different threads that weave through the scripture that tell us one amazing grand story. But we're going to look at just the, the nuance of how mission fits into that. As a matter of fact, there are only two periods in all of human existence where mission does not exist. There's only two periods in all of human history where missions does not exist. I'll tell you the first one. It's before sin entered the world, pre-fall, Genesis 1 and 2, right here. And then at the new heavens and new earth, when God recreates everything brand new, right at Revelation 21, 22, everything else is mission. That's how core this is. There's only two periods where it doesn't exist. And that's before sin entered creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and when God remakes the heavens and earth, Revelation 21 and 22. Everything in between that, friends, mission is key to what we're about. So let's get into them. I have 11 points. Number one, number, point number one, God is the first missionary. God is the first and best missionary. Missions is initiated by humanity's fall into sin. It is initiated by our fall, our plummet into sin, willingly doing so, rebelling against God, and it is only made possible because Christ or God initiates the saving of His people. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. So right after sin happens, 
Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? God knew where they were. His seeking of them was not to locate them physically, it was to save them eternally. He knew where they were. When he says, where are you? He wasn't trying to just find them in the garden. He knew where they were. He was trying to bring them back to relationship from, for, to him. And we see that pattern all through the Scripture. Because of our sin, we hide from God. But because of his grace, he continues to seek us even though we hide from his presence. God is the first and best missionary. Look at your table of contents. We're talking about Genesis right here, the very beginning. But it develops it moves on to the second point. Abraham is now called out to mission. You see very soon in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, God calls Abram to leave his home, to leave his country with nothing but the promise of a new land, a seed, and blessing. You see that in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, leave your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. If you're a note taker, if you're a Bible note taker, write down Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And then verses 26 to 29. I'm not going to read them now. I just don't have the time for it, but write those down. Galatians 3, 6 to 9, and then 26 to 29, where we see that in Christ, the fulfillment of that promise is made to Abram. So what you see now is that is just the book of Genesis. We see right away God is a missionary. God calls Abram on a mission, leave behind everything, go where I need to send you because I have a plan and it necessitates you leaving your family, leaving your comforts, going someplace you don't know to do something you have no idea what I'm going to do, but just do it. And then as the time goes on, now switching to, look at your table of contents, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, now that Abram has become a people, you know Israel are the descendants of Abraham, they are now a nation, and God calls the nation Israel to mission. And the reason being is that all the earth, all the nations of the, of the earth are the Lord's, but He wants His people to be a nation, to serve Him as a holy God, and to mediate His blessings, and to be a witness to the surrounding nations. It's not just individuals. Keep in mind, God's going after everyone. He's going after a people, and so He has this nation, and we see this kind of this christening in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured, treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, to be clear, to be clear, Israel's mission was, was not intentional, cross-linguistic, cross-cultural as missions we understand it today. That, that, that's not what they were doing in the Old Testament. Instead, 
as a recipient of God's blessings and of God's law, they were to be an, an example, a counterculture, uh, countercultural example of what life is under the good word of God, living under His care and His promises, being obedient to His commands. They were to be, as a nation, a witness. Man, this is what life looks like under Yahweh. In the darkness of human sacrifice and the craziness of antiquity, if you know anything about ancient history, you know how chaotic the world was, but there was one nation that was different, and Israel was supposed to be a light on a hill, so to speak, where all the nations would look at and say, something is different about the way they live their lives. They were to be, by the way they live, attracting the world to this God-centered life. Historically, what that meant was in gathering basically Gentiles or non-Jews into their nation. So we have examples of this in, um, in, uh, of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Look at your table of contents, right? Right in about that same area. We have a picture of this in uh, Ruth the Moabitess becoming part of the people of God. The entire book of Ruth is about that story. Friends, let me tell you, uh, I'm going to teach you a word here that it's a big word, but you need to understand it because especially the book series we're going into next is Revelation, and you're going to hear this word a lot. I'm not teaching it to you to impress you. I'm not teaching it to you so we can have insider language. I'm teaching it to you because it carries a lot of conceptual freight. Here it is. Eschatologically, that's a big one. Let me, me, uh, okay, point three, Israel is called to be a nation. Eschatologically, comes from the Greek word eschatology, comes from two Greek words, eschatos means last, logos means word or discourse or subject, so put together eschatology is the doctrine of last things, so eschatological is an adjective, right? Let me tell you why I'm teaching you that word, because when you hear the word eschatology, it's this teaching of all that God will do at the end of all the ages, I'd much rather just say eschatology than go through that whole thing every time, right? So I I want you to know this word because it appears a lot, or we're going to use it a lot in Revelation. Why am I bringing it up now? Because the church is the eschatological reality of what the nation of Israel once was. That the world looks at the church today and says, man, amongst all this chaos and craziness of this world, there's a group of people, they live differently, and it's attractive to me. They live under the good word of God and His commands, and their lives are transformed, and they just are different from us. You see, the church is doing the same kind of job that Israel's doing back in the Old Testament, but we are the eschatological, the end-time example of what it's like to be a people who live under the word of God, the commands of God, who live under His blessings. And so as Israel, look in your table of contents, we see Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Israel was kind of made, now you are this nation on mission. It's not just Genesis and Abraham, it's now the nation of Israel in, the, in those books of the Bible. But it continues on. The Davidic monarchy is the pinnacle of Israel's witness to the world. So look back at your table of contents. The Davidic monarchy takes place basically 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Chronicles is is pretty much what we're talking about, the monarchy. At that point, this period of the monarchy, David's kingship and his son Solomon, they become kind of the, the, the zenith, the pinnacle of what life looks like under God's king. 
and the people of God flourish and are blessed. And there's a partial fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, Jerusalem becomes a world center, not just of commerce because of where they're located, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to Israel because Israel is a land bridge connecting Africa to the south, the Middle East, and Europe to the north. Everything was going to come through there. Now, we know why that was important so that in the New Testament, we'll get to that in a little bit, the gospel could go all over the place quickly. But at that time, it was also pivotal culturally, economically, because trade had to go through that area. And so the, the, the Davidic kingdom of David and Solomon, the people of God are at their height. God's blessings are everywhere. And you would be tempted to think, this is it. This is God's promise to us. Everything's rich. We're secure. We're rich. We're powerful. God is being worshipped. His temple is here. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, we get to see an, an eschatological preview of the Queen of Sheba from Ethiopia. Let me read it to you, verses 4 through 9. So she's talking now to Solomon, David's son, where Solomon no longer had to fight the wars because they were just secure. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. What's it saying? She was breathless. When she saw how blessed the people of God were, how wealthy, how established, how good life was for everyone, including the cupbearers, she was breathless. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, I, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Bless be the Lord. Notice where she takes this. She takes it right to God. Bless be the Lord God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king. During her momentous, so what you're seeing here is this queen of Sheba, she says, look, I didn't believe how blessed you people of God are, that you lived under his law, you lived under his rules, and he has blessed you, and the, all that I heard I didn't believe, but now that I see it, it's not the half of what's going on. What's going on there redemptively, historically, as we look at that, right? And so, so we're looking at here, we're at First and Second Kings now, is that God is showing a preview this is what it's like when you live under my reign. This is what it's like when my king is on the throne. This is what it's like when my people obey my words. There's blessings everywhere. And this queen is a picture of what's going to happen in the eschatos, the end of all things, when all the world comes and says, Yahweh, the Lord is king. Look at what Isaiah says much, much later. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, God, the, uh, to the, house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this, this, this queen that we see here in First Kings, this really taking place, she's a picture of what Isaiah the prophet said years later. This queen is a picture that the nations are going to come and say, blessed are the people of God. This is what it's like when you live under God's rule. She's just a picture of what's going to come. And Isaiah prophesies about it, says there's going to come a day when all the nations come in and do this. Right? But, but the only way they're going to do that is what? Is if we go out to do it. Is if the people of Israel did their job. But did they? No. So now look at the prophets. Point number five. The prophets' main message was for Israel to stay on mission. Look at your table of contents. So we talked about God being the first missionary in Genesis. He gets Abram, Abraham in on that in Genesis. And then how God creates a nation to be on mission. That's what Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is about. We talked about the monarchy being the pinnacle, the picture of this is what it's like when God's king is seated over God's people. And that's from 1 Samuel, the Second Chronicles. Now the prophet's main message was Israel, stay on mission. And that takes place from basically... Um, you see from Isaiah all the way down to the end to Malachi. So what I want you to do is I'm trying to help you orient to the Bible. When you see Isaiah all the way to Malachi, those prophets fit between the time of basically 2 Samuel to 2 Chronicles, right? So, so in other words, remember, it's not linear. These are all stories that are interwoven. And their main message, stay on mission. Stay a witness to the world. They were also uh, messages of rebuke because you people of God, you're not staying on mission. You're blowing your witness. You're conforming to the nations around you. And so their primary message, and, and you remember this when we studied the, our series, the Book of the Twelve, constantly this call to return, right? There we have in Hosea. Those are, there's, there, it appears many more times, but I just want to give you one or two or three verses that really captured the sense and 262 times amongst the 17 prophets that you hear the word hear, as in the great Shema, hear and obey. So hearing means you obey. So the prophets were constantly saying, hear the word of the Lord, come back, obey what he says, return to the promise. Now, I want to test you guys, okay? You're, you're astute. Deuteronomy 28, why is that important? We talked about this in our series, uh, the book of the 12. Why is Deuteronomy 28 important? When I say return, why do I put that verse there? Is anybody, or chapter, anybody remember? What's that? Yes, blessings and curses of what? Right, right. Blessings and curses, because in Deuteronomy 28, God was, they, the people of God were about to go back into the promised land, and before they went in, God said, whoa, 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 one more time. Let's make sure you understand you want to be my covenant people. Let's make sure we understand the relationship here. So if you obey me and you be my people, here's all the blessings that are going to come. If you disobey me and you walk away and you don't want to be my people, here's all the curses that will come. Are you on board? And they said, yes, we're in for this. We want to be your covenant people. Well, why did he have to do it two times? Let's see how well you guys are connecting your, your, your knowledge of Scripture. Why did God have to repeat the covenant two times? It was a new generation. Why? What happened to the first generation? 
they all die because they didn't want to believe God. So God said, all right, I'm starting from scratch. So wander in the wilderness for 40 years and we'll reboot this thing, right? So the people who heard the word at Exodus 19, they were all dead now. It was their kids. And God said, okay, wait a minute. Let's make sure you guys are on board. And so if you want to understand all the prophets, so if you look at your table of contents, if you want to understand from Isaiah to Malachi what's going on, why it's, why it's so severe, why it's so amazing, you got to know Deuteronomy 28. It all comes back to that. So the prophetic message through all of that was stay on mission. You don't exist for yourself. You are on a mission. God is trying to save humanity, and he's bringing it to a fruition, but I need you to be a part of this. Point number six. The prophets, on top of their message of stay on mission and rebuke and encouragement and all that, come back to God, they also reveal that there is a servant, a particular servant through whom the mission will be accomplished. Particularly in the book of Isaiah, so I wrote all those verses down because we couldn't have time to read them. Isaiah reveals that there is a servant that will be the instrument of God's grace to sinners and the key to the extension of God's divine blessings to all humanity, right? Because God wants to save everyone, but He's working with the nation of Israel. So the prophets reveal there's coming a servant, and He is the instrument by which God will bless sinners. And He is the key to understand how God's blessings promised to this nation transcend the nation and go to everyone. Friends, you got to read these verses. If you have friends that are Jewish, they don't even know these verses, depending upon the synagogue, you know. Um, they don't even teach these. You know why? They are like telling you it's Jesus without saying it's Jesus, and they have no idea what to make of that. Now, they have now, those who have actually jumped back into it, interpret the, the, the individual servant to be the nation of Israel. But you cannot draw that conclusion easily if you read these passages. Isaiah is saying, there is coming a servant, and he will be the instrument of God's salvation, and he will be the servant that brings salvation and redemption to everybody. And so, friends, the Old Testament, so, so if you look at, your, you look at your table of contents, right, the Old Testament ends on kind of a cliffhanger. The Old Testament ends, the, the, the mission's not fulfilled. It's like, uh, what happened? Israel failed. They stopped the mission. They didn't come back. They didn't repent. God brought them into exile. So the Old Testament ends with the mission in limbo. What's going to happen? It's stalled out. Because it's not until point number seven that the Gospels and the Acts reveal how this mission just goes into overdrive. It isn't until the Gospels that the identity of this servant that Isaiah and the prophets were talking about is made known and how he will accomplish this amazing work of salvation that saves humanity. The Gospels reveal the identity of the one who takes Israel's role, what Israel had forfeited through their disobedience, and the Gospels reveal the one that takes up the mantle, and that has been transferred to Jesus and now the new people of God. It is no longer the nation of Israel and their 12 tribes. There, there is a new kind of federal head. His name is Jesus. And we saw that clearly in our study of Mark's gospel two years ago, especially Mark chapter 3, verses uh, 7 to 19. Now, while Mark does not show necessarily that Jesus and the disciples were on a Gentile mission, 
He lays the foundation for what the mission ought to accomplish, creating disciples ready to follow their Lord, ready to live for their Lord with the whole of their lives. Now, for those of you who might be interested in our sermon on our website, you can, have all, you can find all of our sermons. That was uh, March 17, 2019, where we unpacked Mark 3. What's interesting is, and I made this point in that sermon, in Mark 3, this is what Mark writes, verse 8. He's talking about Jesus calling these people. All these people were coming to Jesus, and this is what verse 8 says. They came from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon. Friends, those are the major geographical regions where all the 12 tribes of Israel were located. And what Mark is saying as he's introducing Jesus is that this is the new, this is the new Israel, the new son who will actually get the job done, and there are new people flocking to him coming from all the 12 tribes. What Mark is saying is there's a reboot going on here. There is a son that will be obedient, and there's a new people of God. Now, the, the Matthew transcends Mark's gospel by, by ending his account of Jesus giving this great commission to a great mission. And I love the way Matthew sets it up, doesn't he? It's very different than Mark. Matthew sets it up as Jesus being this kind of victorious general surveying the land there on the hillside, and he's telling his, his disciples, you have got all the authority you need. I have got all the authority. We're going to get the job done. Go out there. And, and you guys know how he says it, right? Go into, we say, and, and go into all the world making disciples. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm the general, guys, and we win this. But I need you to go out there and finish the task of mission. Now, Luke Acts, look back in your, your Bibles here. So we talked about Matthew, we'll talk about Mark. Now, Luke and Acts, the reason I'm putting those together, some of you may know this, that Luke and Acts are kind of two volumes of one greater work. When we put the canon of the Bible together, they, they, they kind of separated them. But I want you to see Luke Acts as two volumes of one larger work. They run, run along similar lines, particularly the second volume, which is the book of Acts, which Acts really presents the, the ingathering of this new people of God, this new Israel that God is using. And, and unlike Mark and Matthew, uh, Luke and in Acts displays this on much more universal themes of mission. You see, part of the, the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, had to show why Jesus is the new Israel, how He is the Son of God that fulfilled all the promises, all the requirements to be the Son of God. And so Luke is now picking up part two of that. What does that now mean? Now that we've kind of, humanity has done what humanity was supposed to do. Unfortunately, old humanity couldn't do it. Fortunately, God provided a new humanity, and His name was Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Acts, uh, Luke lists six major events that show the, the kind of spread of this gospel mission happening. So first of all, it's in, oh, you can't see the bottom one. So the first event is Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You remember our study on the work of Christ, why Pentecost was important. This was the inauguration of the new covenant people of God. Get out there, and now you've got the Spirit to get the job done. The second one was the martyrdom of Stephen and the scattering of the church in Acts 7 and 8. That was huge. And by the way, that's, there's so much there that the persecution, it worked for the benefit of the gospel. I often say certain things are horrible for evangelicalism, but they'll be great for the gospel. That's one example. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian at that time being persecuted, and your only hope was to run away and go someplace else? 
And yet God used that to spread the gospel, right? So the gospel is going out. The third one, oh man, you can't see it. It's the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 8, okay? Uh, and then what you have, uh, the fourth one is Peter's vision and Cornelius' conversion in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Who can tell me what is significant about Acts chapter 10? Who knows? My kids better know. Acts chapter 10? <laughs> okay, there's a tradition of the Roadheaver household. We stopped it now that they kind of grew up. But when they were kids, we would always say when we got to eat bacon, praise God for Acts chapter 10. Because <laughs> in Acts chapter 10, a big sheet comes down and the Lord says, kill and eat. Don't call unclean all things that I have made clean. And in there was pig. Why is that significant? God was saying, look, the dietary laws that separated you from all the nations around you, that kept up a barrier, that worked when I needed a national ethnic people. But now that I need you to go out there, I'm bringing down all these walls because salvation is for everybody. That's what's significant about Acts chapter 10, 11. One downstream benefit is we get to eat bacon. So that's why we did that. So it goes on though. Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, he is really pushing the bounds of the gospel mission, getting beyond Israel, Jerusalem, and Judea. And then the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, that is often seen as the turning point in Luke's narrative. That's like the pivotal moment when the church gathers and says, we got to wrestle with this. This gospel that we got from Abraham, this, this understanding of Yahweh's salvation, it's for everyone. It is not a Jewish thing. It's for, it's a human thing because God is saving everyone and that's a turning point. The book of Acts, friends, Acts chapter 28, it doesn't end, does it? If you've read it, it just kind of, it just, it's just open-ended missionary activity because right now we're in Acts chapter 29. The Acts of the Apostles, those sent by God, is not yet complete, which is, by the way, one of my coolest, uh, I love the church planting movement called Acts 829 because they get it. We are in Acts chapter 29. Point number eight, continue. The gospel expands. Look back in your table of contents. So we talked about the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Oh, and, and John, I didn't talk about him, but John's just a great example. That's the ultimate act of God's missionary endeavor. If God's the first missionary in Genesis, God's the best missionary in John, because what do we learn in John chapter one? He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He was here with us. So, so that's the, the, the thrust of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And then we get to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at your table of contents in the New Testament. So everything from Romans to Philemon is pretty much is, is Paul's letters and writings. Paul understood his, his missionary activity to the Gentiles within the context of the Old Testament expectation, friends, that all the nations, all the nations, all of us, every nation, every ethnicity would on that final day receive all the blessings promised to Israel and the, and the Jews. So Paul's whole understanding was everyone gets in on this. The people of God, friends, and Galatians chapter 3 is a perfect chapter to read that. If you're a note taker, write that down. Paul founded churches as he was proclaiming the gospel on his mission because he saw that as a necessary reality, that there needed to be these churches. Conversion to Christ means incorporation into Christ, which is why the book of Ephesians, one of the biggest things he talks about is being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, 
you can't get, turn a, pay, a chapter in the book of Ephesians without Paul talking about being in Christ because he's the new humanity, right? He fulfilled all of God's expectations. Conversion to Christ means incorporation into him, but it also means then membership within his covenant community. And so everywhere the gospel goes on his missionary efforts, Paul is planting churches because he's not just looking for converts, he's looking for disciples, and churches do that work. Much like in the Old Testament where the Gentiles were incorporated into the national people of Israel, now all the people of God are being incorporated into the church. And here's the great thing. We, we don't have time to unpack it, but the people of God are no more one nation and one ethnicity. The people of God are all nations and all ethnicities. Friends, and in our time now, very racially tense time and that politically tense time, that is a message that we've got to sink our teeth into. That if you get the gospel, you get the gospel, you can love both your ethnicity because it's, it's, your, it's the cultural expression of who you are, right? And you can love, you can love your ethnicity and you can love your nation because that's where our ethnicities have expression and context and our forms come out in that. You can love both my ethnicity and my nation without idolizing either, but without a true sense of the gospel. And why we can do that is because God's people, all nations, all ethnicities, without which I think you see the dynamic in our culture where, you know, if you're conservative, you might idolize your, your nation, right? Uh, and, 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 and if you're a progressive, you might idolize your ethnicity. So, forgive me because I'm kind of just thinking how the gospel applies to this. If I'm a conservative, I, I see around us the tendency to idolize my nation, and I don't think anything about ethnic issues that matter. I don't care about those. But if I'm a progressive, I tend to idolize ethnic issues as if that were everything, and I don't care about national issues at all. Right? And you see that dynamic, open borders, we're all global, and who cares about our nation first? It's all about our ethnicity. But on the other hand, it's like, no, close the borders, our nation's important, and what, what's this issue with racial tension? Right? Because on one or other side, they're latching on to something that's good, but they don't have the balancing fulcrum to embrace them both. But in the gospel, I can love every ethnicity and every nation because that's God's people. Without that centering gospel reality, I'm either going to latch on to my national identity or I'm going to on, latch on to my ethnic identity. We need the gospel to do both. We can't unpack that, but that's just an example of why mission matters. Okay, we're uh, 10.06 and I got three more points. Let's go through this. Point nine, uh, so look in your table of contents. Uh, we're going to pass the general epistles. I, I do want to talk about Hebrews because Hebrews continues this theology uh, of mission. And the writer, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that, that Jesus Christ, He is the final expression of God's mission, right, in, in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's amazing. And, and what he goes on later to say is, how are you going to escape if you neglect the message of salvation found in Jesus Christ? There is no hope for us. So he pushes along. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so he pushes along this idea of being on mission. And all through the book of Hebrews, um, he portrays us as runners running a race following Jesus, here where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Um, 
Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. So he, he sees Christians as race runners, running a race, going to something else, looking for a different city, a different country. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. That's what Christians are. We're strangers and exiles on this earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And so, so, so he sees us as runners running a race. He sees us as exiles and strangers looking for a better country, another place for our own self. He sees Jesus as an example to encourage us to, to endure suffering. It's all through the book of Hebrews. So, so the book of Hebrews keeps this idea of we're on mission. You're a foreigner. You're an exile. You're moving through. And then finally, uh, point 10, the book of Revelation. Now, you can look in your table of contents. That's the last book. Revelation does not really depict mission, but Revelation depicts the result of mission. Revelation depicts the result of what our lives are supposed to be like. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered in heaven to worship God and the Lamb. And after this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You can read that. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen. Creation has come full circle. The Edenic state, the Garden of Eden, get back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's not merely restored, it's superseded. Paul says in that time now there is no death, there's no suffering, there is no pain, right? Revelation 21.4. I love this, and you're going to see this when we study Revelation. I love what Revelation 21, right before this, it's like massive. God's like bringing the hammer down, and He's taking care of business. But I love what He says here. With all this power and might, what does He do? Takes out a handkerchief, and He just wipes away tears. That is so like the Lord. All this power, and yet He wipes away every tears from their eyes. You got to be pretty gentle to wipe tears out of your eyes, don't you? Or especially when you matter your kids. You can't jam your thumb in there. It's nice and gentle and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All mission will come to an end. Why? Because there's going to be full worship, full fellowship between the Creator and the creation. The glory of God will be fully known, be fully loved, fully embraced. That's what mission's about. It's the last point, your mission. You can see from cover to cover, this is a book that is about being on mission. It's about salvation. It's about Christ. It's about mission. It's all interwoven. That's us. For some of you, it will mean cross-cultural ministry, leaving things behind, going to a different language, a different culture. 
For many of you, it will mean staying behind in your home culture, in your home language. For all of us, it means we need to be aware of the role we're playing and play it well. Let me conclude with uh, William Carey. I shared this story. I said it was Hudson Taylor, but it's, it's William Carey. He wanted to take the gospel to India, the dark country of India back in 1793. And he likened his trip to descending into a dark unknown and possibly dangerous cave, and William Carey responding to his friends, particularly Andrew, Andrew Fuller, who really William Carey is known to us because of this unknown man named Andrew Fuller, who basically talked to everyone about what William Carey was up to, made sure that he was funded, and was just getting the job done. But Carey said this, I will go down as deep as necessary, but I will need someone to hold the rope. Andrew Fuller held the rope, so much so that we don't know Andrew Fuller. We know William Carey. Friends, we all must either go or be holding the rope. I've used that metaphor before. How are you holding the rope? Are you like tug of war holding it? Like you just got that bad boy? Or are you like garden hose Saturday morning holding it, right? It's two different ways of holding the rope. So the question is, how do we hold the rope effectively? And I just want to last end with four verbs. Do I have a slide for this? Yeah. Be a part of a local church that sees mission as an extension of the gospel. And when I say that, I don't mean just attend. I mean be a part of the fabric of a, a church, whether it's this one or wherever it is, that sees missions as an extension of the gospel. So that it's, it's not just a handful of us. Once in a while, we get them like the Van Piersons there and the others that came back, like the Kents or, or Marcus or Kyle and Krista. But, but, but somehow all of us are thinking about that. If I'm not going to go, and, and frankly, most of us won't go, but all of us then need to be holding the rope, be a part of a local church that's, that's fueling that in you. Give generously. There's a second verb. Give generously to the church so that it can turn, in turn give generously to missions. I think that's the primary model we see in the New Testament. Today, we have other ways that you can give to missions. I want to I encourage that, but, but, but God's plan is the local church. It's our job, it's not missions agencies to raise up missionaries, that's you and I have to do that. So give generously so we can give generously, like you have been giving generously, right? Be part of that. Third, another verb, take pastoral responsibility of missionaries. If you don't know who they are, talk to somebody on our missions team. Anybody from our missions team? Matt, you're on a missions team. Anyone else here from missions team? Gary back there, talk to them. Don't wait for the missions committee to do it. Don't expect just the elders to do it. You can do it. Not all of our missionaries, but maybe one of them, right? Find out what they like. And not just the spiritual stuff. Send Steve Patton a box of uh, Reese's Pieces cereal. It's his favorite cereal. He can't get that where he's at, right? Love them in practical ways. Take pastoral responsibility. And finally, the last verb, love the gospel, because that is the fuel of missions. Love the gospel, because that is the fuel of missions. That's how you can hold the rope be part of a local church, be part of its fabric, go on missions trips with them overseas or down the street, give generously, take responsibility, love the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to think about missions, and as we just took a cursory glance at Scripture, that missions is, is part of the heartbeat of what you are about, because salvation is part of what you are about which is why Jesus is such a big deal, because they're all interwoven together. 
Father, I'm so grateful that we have a church, that there, there are missionaries even here with us now today that were once, monks once with us weekly that have answered that call, and I'm thankful that there are people here who have answered the call and are holding the rope well. Father, we want that to be our heartbeat as, 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 as anything else. Help us be on mission as you were, to pursue others as you pursued us, so that at Revelation 7, we can look around that room, we can look around that, that throne room, and we can say, I helped do this by the glory and enabling of God for his glory and his people's good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.